Cornerstone. Okay, so I, I went to high-five my wife. Uh, she didn't put her hand up. <laughs> hey, just want to do a shout-out to our other campuses, Cornerstone Santan, Cornerstone Scottsdale. Just so thrilled uh, that you're with us, and uh, it's cool, and we think you're going to have a great Sunday today. Hey, real quick, real quick, uh, India Project. Let me, let me just land this for us real quick. We're trying to raise $75,000. We're trying to raise $75,000 to help feed hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of lepers for a year, for an entire year. We did this about two years ago, and we raised, I think it was 50000 at the time. We provided them meals for an entire year. Last year, I go to India. I'm there at the leper colony. And guys, I'm just going to say this is heartbreaking because these people within Indian culture are considered delits, which means you're the outcast, you're the untouchables because they've got leprosy. And within Indian culture, uh, because it's so involved in Hinduism, they believe that there is a reason that they have leprosy, and that is they must have done something bad in a former life, so this is their karma, and they need to suffer through being lepers. And you ready for this? And nobody should help them because if you help them, then they may not earn their way to a higher state of being in their next life. So you let them suffer, and these guys cannot be employed. They, they literally are on the verge of starving death. So I'm sitting there in this camp. They're singing to God. You heard the stories going on. Suresh stops and says to them, tell Pastor, what would be, what's the greatest need in your camp that you have here? And they said, food. Because right now we are eating one meal a day. And then I remembered. Our pledge to feed them was two years ago. Our pledge ran out. And nobody came in behind. And so for the last year, they've been eating one meal a day. And I just said in that moment, as I sat there, we're, we're going to fix this for them. And so my heart's plea as your pastor is, would you be generous? And so when the service gets over, you're going to head out of this auditorium. We've got some booths set up. And would you give generously above your regular tithes and offerings? This isn't shut the air conditioning off at Cornerstone to feed the leper project. This is the let's be generous project. And we're going to do this above our normal gifts. And we're going to change India. And guys, I'm just telling you. You and I doing something for the least of these is the reason the gospel is exploding in India because since none of their own countrymen will do anything for them, the idea that a Christian, a Christian would reach out in love and consideration and do anything for them, as simple as giving them meals, their hearts are suddenly open to the gospel and they are turning to Christ. 
by the hundreds, by the hundreds, by the hundreds. This is an amazing thing that you and I get to do. So I'm just going to ask you, as you leave this auditorium today, to be incredibly generous in helping us feed these two leper colonies in India. All right, so here we are. We're in the middle of doing a series on sex. Kind of weird for a church. We admit that. But what we've been doing in this conversation is saying, look, 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 God's the guy that created the plumbing. God's the guy who came up with the idea. And there's a chance that he had something to say about this, that he actually knows more about it than a movie does. And that if you and I listen to our culture, if you and I treat this topic the same way that our neighbors and our friends treat this topic, then we have no reason to believe that it's going to turn out any different for us. The same heartache, the same disappointment, the same regret is going to fill our lives that's filling our neighbors' lives and our co-workers' lives. And so what if, and that's all we've been asking, what if for a couple weeks we have the conversation, what if we simply consider what it would be like to do this God's way and, and, then, and then make a decision uh, at the end, but here's what we've been challenged with. Is it possible, is it possible that our culture has missed this topic by such a, a huge amount that if we continue to live this topic of our sexuality the way everybody else does, we'll get what everybody else does, we'll end up with a small, cheap imitation, a disappointing replica of what God really intended for this encounter between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, to ultimately be. And that if you and I would simply bring our lives in line, if we'd say, look, I get it, I get it. There's a whole bunch of what the culture is doing that kind of looks fun and it looks a job, but at the end, it blows up your life. And if you and I were to bring our lives into, into obedience, into following the prescriptions of God, what if God had something far more amazing that he was offering for our sexuality? I mean, wouldn't that be a topic worth having? And so we've simply done that for the last few weeks. Last week, last week as we did this, we said, look, look, it is completely impossible for two human beings to have a purely sexual encounter because, 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 because you and I aren't animals. Animals can have a purely physical encounter, but God made you and me in his image. And when he did that moment, he placed something inside of a man, he placed something inside of a woman that was above the animals. It's our spirit which means that you and I can never engage with someone sexually and not bring our souls with us. And our souls experience that same encounter. And when we do it recreationally, when we say, look, this is just two bodies rubbing together for mutual satisfaction, our souls are violated and wounded in that moment. And as much as you and I may want to discuss it ahead of time and say, no, 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 this is just a physical thing and it doesn't really count and it doesn't really, your soul does not understand that conversation and it is impossible for your soul to stay absent from the bed. And so we said, big things are at stake when a man and a woman come together sexually. Now, this is, this is an absolute contrast. Think about this to what our culture's saying. Matter of fact, our culture says, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, if you're single, if you're single, have at it. Do whatever you want to do. Have a blast because someday you're going to be married and it won't, you know, then you'll be pretty restricted. So, you know, so just go, go. Be like a dog. Be with as many people as you want to be with. It doesn't matter as long as you're ready, as long as you're responsible. As long as you don't get someone pregnant, it's okay. We say to people who are divorced, they find themselves single again, and we go, hey, look, I mean, 
wow, I mean, how dumb would it be for you to wait to get married again? I mean, you've already had sex for an entire marriage, and the reality is everybody that's out there your age, they have too, so go, go. Until you make those promises, until you make that commitment to someone else, go. Test drive the car. And you and I have basically been fed the line that there are seasons of life, there are moments in time when what you and I do morally really doesn't have any repercussion. It doesn't matter what you do when you're single because, you know, it's interesting, our culture even goes a step further. It says there's places you can go that when you're in that place, it no longer matters what you do morally with your sexuality. It's okay because what happens in Come on, you know the answer to that. Well, I'm the church person. I don't know that answer. <laughs> you do too. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. How? Look, look, look. Let me just ask you a question. Does that actually work? Does that actually, I mean, think about it. Can I get on an airplane, fly somewhere, and when I get to that destination, what I do morally doesn't matter when I get home? That, that it's, it, it's a, it's a, free zone spiritually. Is there a hotel room that I can buy, a door that I can lock behind me that, that, that it's okay? Is there, is there a certain time of night that it no longer matters if I go on the internet? Is there such a thing as morally free zone? Is, is, it, is there a place I can go that what I do when I'm in that place doesn't affect me? And you understand, basically the principle is this. The principle is what I call box living. It's this idea that says, hey, I can have certain parts of my life that I live in obedience to God. So in other words, I may have my family life and I'm trying to be a really good husband or I'm trying to be a really good mother and, 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 and I'm doing that as best I can to the glory of God. And maybe my finances, maybe you're a person in here and you say, look, I've already surrendered my finances to God. I'm being totally obedient to God within my finances. Or maybe it's your work and you go, look, I, I'm just so different than my coworkers. <laughs> They lie and they're always trying to cut a deal and they're always telling dirty jokes in the break room. And look, I just don't do that. I, I've taken my work life, my employment, and I, I do this in a way that honors Jesus. But there's this one part of my life. There's this one part of my life that I've moved away from the rest of my life. It's kind of a box. And in that part of my life, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know I'm living in disobedience. And for many of us, it's our sexuality. I, I know I'm a Christian teenager. I know, I know, I know. I know what God says about sleeping with my girlfriend. I know, but. And we've moved the box. I know, I know, I am. I'm a husband and a father and I'm trying to serve God in my life. And, and I know pornography probably ha shouldn't be there, but you just don't understand where my marriage is right now and you don't understand the struggles we're having. And so yeah, I've, I've got a box. I've got a place I go late at night. I've got a search engine that I use when everybody else has gone to sleep. I got a box. And the thought is, as long as this box 
never touches the rest of my box, never touches my family box, never touches my work box, doesn't touch my relationship with Jesus, that somehow that I'm, I'm okay because I'm navigating, because this becomes, you ready, a morally safe zone to do whatever I'm going to do, even if it's in disobedience to God. And my question is, does that work? Because so many of us are trying to navigate it. And here's what we're going to discover today. Life in boxes is always doomed. Because, 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 ready? Because whatever you put in this box will eventually ooze out. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles. Uh, Go with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to take a character study. We're going to take a look at a guy who tries desperately hard to live his life in boxes, only to find out that life in boxes is impossible. It's Joshua chapter 7. If you're not really familiar, go to the front of your Bible. Okay, so back to Genesis again. Start working to the right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Sixth book of the Bible. Joshua chapter 7. Let me set us up while you're getting there. Here's what's happened. The children of Israel have been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Charleston Heston shows up and bleeds them out. Holds a stick up and the water is part and Ten Commandments. No. Moses shows up. Remember the plagues? He's led them out. Interesting moment. This is almost mind-boggling. After all God's done to deliver them from Egypt, they get to the Jordan River. They see Israel, the promised land. They send in 12 spies. The spies come back and go, whoa, those guys on the other side of the river, they are big. They are huge. And there's tons of them. So they take a vote. And in the vote, the vote goes, everybody says no to say yes. And the two say yes are guys by the name of Joshua and Caleb. Hence the book, Joshua. God says to them, look, because in a moment that required faith in your lives and because in a moment that I needed you to trust me as God and because in that moment you blinked and you didn't do it, you're not going to be given another opportunity to go to the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You ever wonder why 40 years? It's long enough for all the adults who voted no to die off. And God says, I'm going to let your children have a second crack at this. Boy, that'd be a tough time, wouldn't it? If you and I ever as a church had a moment that God asked us to do something, and in that moment you and I would blink and say, God, we just don't have enough faith, and God said, okay, then I'm just not going to work with you. I'll come back in 40 years when I can ask your children the same question. And so he comes back, and it's 40 years later, and they're standing at the Jordan River. There's Joshua, and God says, hey, are you ready to go? And the children of Israel say, we're ready to go. He says, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the big one first. And so he says, we're going to go get the town of Jericho. Now, guys, Jericho was the bastion of defense. It is a huge fortified city. Matter of fact, the walls of Jericho are so thick that history tells us that you could drive two chariots around the top of the wall of Jericho side by side. And you got to remember, now we're attacking with spears. Huge walls. And so God says, here's the battle plan. Here's how I'm going to deliver Jericho to your hand. You're going to go to Jericho, and every day you're going to walk around the city of Jericho. When you get done walking around the city of Jericho, you're going to blow a horn. Next day, you're going to go back out. You're going to walk around the city of Jericho. When you get done walking around the city of Jericho, you're going to blow a horn. Do this for seven days. On the seventh day, you're going to walk around seven times, and then you're going to blow your horn really loud. And then you're going to wait and see what God does. That's the battle plan. 
Now, I don't know about you, I wouldn't be too excited about the battle plan. You got a rebellious kid? Try that. <laughs> so they do it, and sure enough, God knocks the walls down to the city of Jericho. Matter of fact, archaeologists have discovered the city of Jericho. The walls fell out. It's an amazing thing if you ever get a chance to see it. And now the armies of Israel come running in. They plunder the city. Here was the command of God. Get this real quick. The command of God is when you plunder Jericho, you're going to take the best of the best and you're going to save it. We're going to take that and use it to build the temple. It's a building project. Now, this is different because a lot of times when you read your Bible, when God sends the children of Israel out to destroy a city, he says, burn everything. These guys were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping idols. I don't want you to have anything to do with it. Burn everything. But this time, God says, no, we're starting phase one of the building project. Keep the good stuff. Burn the rest. When they're in the city, there's a guy. There's a guy. In a moment, as he's looting the stuff, sees some stuff and thinks to himself, I wonder if I could live my life in a box. Here it is. Let's go to the passage. It's Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Here's what happens. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things, the things that were supposed to be set aside for building the temple, the, the best of the best stuff. Achan, son of Camry, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, it's interesting because in this passage, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happened or how this occurred, but the reality is you and I don't need that information, do we? You and I, without even being told, know exactly what happened. Achan goes into this particular house, he happens to see really cool stuff lay, laying around, and he begins a conversation with himself. And the conversation goes something like this. That whole rule, that whole rule about giving the best stuff to God and burning the rest of that, that's a dumb rule. If I were God, I wouldn't have made that rule. I wouldn't have put that in the Bible. Matter of fact, here's what I'm thinking. God could have the first half. He could have the best. Why not let us keep the second half? Can you imagine what that would do to the economy of Israel? What's God thinking? Dumb rule. It's been a tough year. Camel needs new tires. Kids are enrolled in private school. Tents got a rip and it's monsoon season. I don't know. I'm the guy. I'm the guy who always comes up a little on the short end of the stick. Someone else always gets the promotion. Someone else always gets the better job. Someone else ha happens to get a something in the mail. I, I, why am I the guy who's always kind of not getting enough? And here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. That. <laughs> that would just about make me and God even. If I had that, then all the disappointment, all the places God didn't come through, we'd be just about square. It's a small sin, right? It's a small sin. I mean, stop and think about all the other bigger things that I could be doing. I mean, it's a small sin. Think, 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 think about it. If this is really supposed to be in God's pile, I mean, his pile is going to be so huge. I mean, what is this? A percent of a percent of a percent of a percent of disobedience? 
And if it's supposed to be burned up, I mean, it's a small sin, right? I mean, have you seen what my neighbors are doing? I know other Christians in the church doing way worse than me. After all, what happens in Jericho stays in Jericho. See, here's why you and I know the conversation. Here's why God didn't have to fill in the blanks. Because you and I have had the same conversation, haven't we? we we've had moments in our life where we, we just simply said, look, 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 look. If God had been more reasonable, if God had been fairer to me, I, I wouldn't need to be making up for what I don't have. If God had made my wife better, if God had made my husband better, then I wouldn't even be thinking about this relationship outside of my marriage right now. I wouldn't be on the internet looking at porn. And here's what I'm thinking. I've got all the rest of my life surrender to God. I'm living this in obedience to God. I'm thinking, I'm thinking this thing and guys, you, you get it. This thing can be anything. We're talking about sexual sin today, but the truth is, this thing is any part of my life that I move from obedience to God and willingly live in a box of disobedience. It can be pride. It can be unforgiveness. It's whatever thing I say, this is my box. This makes me happy. interesting as you go on in the story. There's a little village. Uh, it's called Ai. It's more of a hamlet, actually. And the generals get together and they talk and they say, look, we, we probably can't move on until we take care of Ai. I know it's a tiny little group of people, but it's tactically strategic. And if we leave it undone, then our enemies are going to be able to come up on our rear. They're going to be able to reinforce behind us. It, we have got to do something about that little village before we go. And so the decision is made, look, we'll just send 3,000 men, which is way overkill, way overkill. We'll send 3,000 men to AI. The rest of us will hang back here, take a little bit of a vacation. Let them go take care of AI. The 3,000 men go. Tuck a little town. Little down. Should have 50, should have been enough. Anybody want to guess what happens? The 3,000 men of Israel are routed. Matter of fact, as they flee, as they retreat away from that little hamlet, 36 men are struck down and killed. 36 men lose their lives. 36 women are now widows. 36 families are fatherless. It's a catastrophic moment. See, the whole point of the Battle of Jericho was to put fear in all of the armies that were around them and to let them know that God was with this people of Israel. But if a little hamlet of 50 or 60 men can rout 3,000 of Israel, then what do you think every other nation around them is going to think? They're going to think, we can take the people of God, no problem. If word gets out that AI has run off 3,000, this is catastrophic. And so Joshua goes before God 
and he falls on his face. He says, God, what have you done? You led us out of Egypt. You led us here to what? Deliver us into the hands of our enemies? Why have you turned your, how can you let this happen? And God says this to Joshua, I didn't let it happen. Israel did. Ready? There is sin in the camp. And for the first time, this box begins to ooze. The consequences, the fallout of living life in boxes begins to play out. Go back to the passage. It's verse 19. Joshua calls the people of Israel. He says, okay, we're going to figure out who it is that sinned. Who is it that's got God so frustrated with us right now? And so they begin to call out each tribe, and God reveals to them, hey, it's the tribe of Judah. And then in the tribe of Judah, they begin to call out all the clans, and God says, it's this clan. And then they take that clan and start taking all the men of that clan and line them up, and it goes to Achan's grandfather, and then to Achan's father, and then to Achan. Here's the conversation Joshua has with Achan. Verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. I have to have that. I know what God has said. I know, I know. This is my box. This, this is my place to disobey. A piece of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them. I took them and they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. You get what he did? He took the stuff. He sneaks back to his tent, he digs a hole in his tent, and he buries all the stuff that he's taken, and then he covers it over with dirt. You get his heart. He's saying, look, 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 no, no, no. This, this is going to be my personal sin. This is, this is what I'm going to do, and, you know, what I do shouldn't affect anybody else, and so I'm going to bury it in the ground and cover it. My family's not even going to know. I'm going to insulate them from my disobedience. That's what I'm going to do. If anybody's going to get hurt, it's nobody but me. You, you, get, you get, Aiken's not trying to be a jerk. In reality, he's trying to be a good guy. He, he, he's just gotten to a point where he thinks, I cannot possibly be happy if I were to live with every part of my life in obedience to God. And so instead, this is my box. This is my one thing. But his desperate hope, his desperate prayer is that, that nobody in his family is ever going to be affected by it. No one's going to be touched by it. Just him. You know what's ironic? He buries it in the ground in his tent, which means every single day when his wife walks in, she steps over that. When his children go to bed at night, they lay their heads down on that. And as much as Achan is hoping to insulate them and keep them out, it can't happen.
Because, because, because. Boxes never work. And let me see if I can help you with why. Everything I do, everything I don't do is me. So if, if I live my family in complete surrender to God, if, that's, if I set a godly example for my children, if, if, if our family shows to church every Sunday because that's what the Smiths do, you realize that is me because it speaks of my character. It, it speaks of my faith. It is a direct reflection of who I am on the inside. And if I choose to live my business in a godly way, if I decide, look, I'm not going to lie like the rest of the salespeople, I'm going to be fair and straight up, and I'm not going to join in the talks around the water cooler, that is me. It's not a box. And the reality is, every bit of that that reflects my character and my personhood, it's mixed together. There's, there's no difference between who I am as a family man and who I am as a businessman. It's the same man. There's no difference between who I am as a mother and who I am when I'm gossiping at Starbucks. It's the same person. It's me. And if I choose to make sure that my entertainment is godly and that I'm not watching things on TV that I shouldn't be watching, that's character. It's what gives me the freedom that when my kids come walking into the room and I haven't had a chance to flip the channel that they're not going to see me doing something that's inconsistent with my walk with God. Because it's me. Which is why when I choose to have a part of my life that I live in disobedience to God, in which I say, look, God, I know Scripture says don't do this. I know this is exactly what you wouldn't want me to do. I know, I know, I know. I don't care. It's impossible for that sin, whether it's sexual or anything else, to stay in a box. And that sin affects me and changes me. Because there's no such thing as boxes when it comes to character. Back to the passage. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in the tent with the silver underneath, and they took the things from the tent, and they brought them to Joshua and to all of Israel, and they spread them out before the Lord. You get, you get that? The very thing that Achan was trying to keep secret is now on display publicly. And I, 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 if you're playing the tightrope, if you're doing the hide-and-seek game with your sin, there'll be the day. There'll be the day your kids see it. There'll be the day your coworkers see it. It'll be on display. They took the things from the tent, they brought them to Joshua and for all of Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua together with all 
of Israel took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, his sons, his daughters, his donkey, his cattle. Over Achan, they piled a heap of large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. The Lord turned from the fierce anger, and therefore the place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Does that story bother anybody but me? See, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out why the sons and daughters get stoned. I'm trying to figure out why the donkey gets stoned. I mean, if you're the donkey, you're going, what did I ever do? I mean, some Bible theologians have tried to surmise and say, well, maybe the kids were in on it. Maybe, maybe Achan came back and said, hey, you'll never guess what I got buried in the tent. You get half, I get half. It'll be your inheritance someday. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Sin splashes. When you choose to live any part of your life in disobedience to God, it splashes. And you don't get to control and you don't get to decide who gets hurt by it, who gets touched by it. If you don't believe me, ask the family of a drug addict. Because I guarantee you when that drug addict was sticking that needle in arm, they're going, I'm only hurting me. Ask the family of a drug addict if that's true. Ask the children a divorce if divorce stayed between just mom and dad. Because sin splashes, guys. And you don't get to decide where it splashes to. You don't get to contain it. Here's what I do know. 36 men are dead. 36 women are widows. 36 families of children don't have a dad anymore because of the sin of Achan. And now his own family, people he loved and people he, people he would have said, no, 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 please, never them, have been affected by a man who chose to live his life in a box to say, hey, this is my sin, this is the one place of my life that's gonna be in disobedience to God. He is, he is the teenager who says, hey, I love my girlfriend. He is the guy who gets on the web late at night. He is the one who begins the office romance thinking, this will never touch my family. And he's wrong. And not only can you not contain it, not only can you decide where it splashes. But here's the other part. We get so fooled by sin, we, we think because when we sin that God doesn't immediately strike us with lightning, that somehow we got away with it. I promise you, I promise you, Achan, as he leaves Jericho carrying that stuff, he sneaks back to his tent, he gets in there, he digs the hole, he puts it in the hole, he pats the dirt over the top, and when he walks out of the tent, he goes, Phew. Got away with it. No one saw. Grab your Bibles. 
Galatians chapter 6. It's going to be almost to the back of your Bible and then go to the left. Galatians chapter 6. Hey, do me a favor, like rattle some papers so I think you're looking. Okay. Galatians chapter 6. It's verse 7. Here's what it says. You ready? You ready? Do not be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Don't tell yourself a lie. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And you get what God's saying. Like, look, 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 look. This is a farming principle. Think about farming. When the farmer goes out, he sows seed. And what do you get back? If you sow corn seed, what do you get back? Corn. If you sow turnips, what do you get back? If you and I sow righteousness, what do we get back? If you and I sow sin, what do you get back? And here as the farmer is out and he's laying the seeds in the furrow, guess what a farmer never does? He doesn't look over his shoulder and go, hey, I wonder how many plants are coming up already. Because farmers understand the principle of harvest, that there's a period of time it takes for those seeds to germinate and to actually grow up and become mature. And that, that time is a long way away from the time of planting. And guys, here's what happens in our lives. See, we, we sit on the internet late at night and we get done and we go to bed and the next day it's the same as the day before. And we go, ah, oh, I got away with it. We go take that lunch date with the secretary and we go, got away with it. You're missing the principle of sowing and reaping. And just because God didn't strike you down with lightning in the moment doesn't mean you are going to have a crop failure. I'm six years old. My family had a, a night. We had popcorn night. We got done with popcorn night, and I looked in the bottom of my bowl. There was a bunch of kernels. I thought to myself, hey, why waste the kernels? And as a six-year-old, I went out in my backyard, and I planted the seeds in my sandbox. Four months later, my dad happened to be in the backyard, six-foot-tall stalks of popcorn corn growing in the sandbox. I hadn't even noticed them, and suddenly they were there. And so it is with sin. Then in the moment that you and I plant it, we go, got away with it. Now you just set a seed. You just set a seed. So what do you do? Because here's, here's the thing. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, some of us walked into this room and you're living life in boxes. You, you would say, hey, no, no, Lynn, I've got, I've got all sorts of parts of my Christian walk that I'm living in absolute surrender to Jesus. You, you don't get it. You don't get how changed I am. You don't get how different my life is. But you got a box. And it might be this area of sexuality. It may be something totally different. It may be unforgiveness in your life. It may be a place you're being dishonest at work. I don't know what your box is. But you walked in with a box. It's impossible to live life in boxes. They always leak. So what do you do? You stop. You stop. You stop right now. You stop before anyone's gotten hurt. You stop before it's been drug out in the open and displayed. You stop. 
and you throw your heart on the mercy of God and you say, God, please, 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 before I, before I do something that causes harm and wound to the people I love, before my sin splashes out, I'm stopping. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask you in this moment, would you forgive me? And the incredible thing is that you and I have a savior who hung on a cross to forgive this. And if you and I are simply willing to ask, he's willing to change our hearts. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to move the box today. Let's bow our heads. There were some of us in this room, and this was a conversation about your sexuality. You're, you're a single, and you've been out sleeping around, and you've been saying, hey, I know, I know what Scripture says, but I've been living like my culture. I've been living like my friends. And you thought, you thought that as long as the rest of your Christian life was okay, it was okay to have this box. There are people in this room and you've been on the internet looking at stuff that you have no business looking at and you've, you've justified it. You've said, hey, if my marriage was better, <laughs> I wouldn't have to look at this stuff. If, if what happened in my childhood hadn't happened in my childhood, I wouldn't be so inclined. This wouldn't be such a struggle for me. And so you have a box. It's your late night box. For some of us, it has nothing to do with our sexuality. It has to do with unforgiveness for somebody who wounded us. It has to do with pride. Some of us, it's gossip. I don't care what the box is. Boxes don't work. Boxes always leak. And the people we love always get hurt. Forget the box. And I'm just gonna ask you today to Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and just say, look, before this box gets out of control, before somebody gets really, really hurt, forgive me, forgive me. And I'm moving, I'm moving this back. I'm not gonna live life in boxes anymore. Let's pray, dear Lord Jesus. I just pray for every person in this room who sat through this message and said, that's me, that's me. And they've got a box. They, they know the name of the box. They know what's in the box. And they've justified it and they've had a hundred reasons for it and they've excused it. And now they know life in boxes never works. And so God, I'm just gonna ask that your people today would come back to you, that they would beg for your forgiveness, that they would come in repentance and that God in your mercy you might consider giving them a second chance with the box. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.